Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we covered the topic of obstructive shock found under the cardiovascular section at MedBullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 35-year-old woman presents to the emergency room with shortness of breath. She reports that she has had shortness of breath on exertion for a few weeks, which has progressively worsened. She also reports some chest pain. She has a history of breast cancer and is now post-chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Her blood pressure is 83 or 54, pulse is 110 beats per minute, and respirations are 24 breaths per minute. On physical exam, she has jugular venous distension, delayed capillary refill, and faint peripheral pulses. Her skin is cold and clammy. This is a case of constrictive pericarditis. Let's continue with an introduction to obstructive shock. Clinically, this is defined as shock secondary to extracardiac causes of pump failure. In terms of the etiology, it may be due to issues with the pulmonary vasculature, and that is associated with right ventricular failure, pulmonary embolism, and severe pulmonary hypertension. It may be due to mechanical issues, such as intention pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, constrictive pericarditis, or restrictive cardiomyopathy. In terms of the pathogenesis, the general concept involves an underlying extracardiac event or process that causes a cardiac outflow obstruction, which results in decreased cardiac output. The decreased cardiac output results in compensatory increases in systemic vascular resistance. For pulmonary vascular causes, there's an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance, which is greater than the right ventricular pressure. For mechanical causes, there is a decrease in preload and inadequate right ventricular filling, and this often presents like hypovolemic shock. Moving on to the presentation, symptoms typically present with features of the underlying cause, such as pleuritic chest pain and pulmonary embolism. On exam, one may note hypotension, tachycardia, jugular venous distension, and cold and clammy skin. In terms of further imaging, echocardiography is indicated to detect the underlying causes, such as pericardial tamponade. In terms of further studies, a pulmonary artery catheterization will demonstrate a decreased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure less than 15 millimeters of mercury in most cases, but there may be an increased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure in cardiac tamponade. There may be normal or decreased cardiac output as the severity progresses, and there will be an increase in systemic vascular resistance. And when making the diagnosis, remember that most cases are clinically diagnosed. Let's quickly review the different types of shock. In hypovolemic shock, the skin is cold and clammy. The wedge pressure is decreased, the systemic vascular resistance is increased, and the cardiac output is decreased. In cardiogenic shock, the skin is cold and clammy, the wedge pressure is increased, the systemic vascular resistance is increased, and the cardiac output is decreased. In obstructive shock, the skin is cold and clammy, the wedge pressure may be increased or decreased, the systemic vascular resistance is increased, and the cardiac output is the same or decreased. In distributive shock, the skin is warm and dry, the wedge pressure may be unchanged or decreased, the systemic vascular resistance is decreased, and the cardiac output may be decreased or increased. And in terms of the management approach, remember that this involves treating the underlying cause. And lastly, Complications related to obstructive shock include death and acute renal failure. 
Now that we've discussed the major points relating to obstructive shock, let's walk through a question to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For this question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 37-year-old woman presents to the emergency department in cardiac arrest. She was found to have altered mental status at home, and during transport to the hospital, she became pulseless. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation is ongoing, and two intravenous lines are placed. The patient is obese, and her only medication is an oral contraceptive pill. She recently underwent Achilles tendon repair. She otherwise is known to smoke cigarettes on occasion. Physical exam is notable for a critically ill patient with chest compressions ongoing. The monitor shows pulseless electrical activity. Her right lower extremity is in a post-operative splint. The patient regains her pulse after several rounds of CPR and epinephrine. A bedside echocardiograph is notable for a dilated and hypokinetic right ventricle with septal bowing into a hyperkinetic left ventricle. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And the answer choices are Choice 1. Cardiogenic shock Choice 2. Hemorrhagic shock Choice 3. Neurogenic shock Choice 4. Obstructive shock or choice five, septic shock. The best answer to this question is choice four, obstructive shock. This obese patient on oral contraceptive pills with recent orthopedic surgery is presenting in cardiac arrest. Given the bedside echocardiograph that is notable for a dilated and hypokinetic right ventricle with septal bowing into a hyperkinetic left ventricle, the most likely diagnosis is a pulmonary embolism that is causing obstructive shock. Pulmonary embolism is most commonly caused by a deep vein thrombosis in the veins of the lower extremity that travels to the pulmonary circulation. Patients will present with pleuritic chest pain, hypoxia, sinus tachycardia, and hemoptysis. Massive pulmonary emboli can cause hemodynamic instability. Patients may become hypotensive, tachycardic, and ultimately pulseless. The pulmonary embolism can obstruct blood flow from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery, leading to a dilated and hypokinetic right ventricle with septal bowing and a hyperdynamic left ventricle. This is a type of obstructive shock. Treatment of a massive pulmonary embolism causing hemodynamic instability may involve thrombolytics or thrombectomy. The publication by Strandl et al. reviews obstructive shock. They note that obstructive shock is caused by an obstruction of blood flow out of, or in the case of tamponade, into the heart. They recommend that treating the underlying cause is the only effective management option. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Cardiogenic shock is caused by cardiac dysfunction in conditions such as myocardial infarction or heart failure. Cardiac dysfunction then leads to impaired systemic perfusion. Initial management includes treating the underlying cause, such as cardiac catheterization for an ST-elevation myocardial infarction and vasopressors, such as norepinephrine, to maintain the patient's blood pressure. Choice 2. Hemorrhagic shock is a common cause of shock and trauma and presents with hypotension and tachycardia secondary to blood loss. A narrowed pulse pressure may be the first sign of hemorrhagic shock. The mainstay of management is blood transfusion and an intervention to stop the bleeding. Choice 3. Neurogenic shock occurs when there is central nervous system trauma, often to the cervical spine, leading to decreased sympathetic tone systemically. Patients will present with hypotension and bradycardia, 
and management is centered on vasopressors to maintain blood pressure and neurosurgical intervention for the underlying etiology. IV fluids can also be given to maintain blood pressure. Choice 5. Septic shock occurs when a systemic infection leads to vasodilation and endothelial dysfunction with hypotension refractory to fluid resuscitation. The mainstay of management includes fluids, blood cultures, vasopressors, and broad-spectrum antibiotics. Early administration of antibiotics improves outcomes. Finally, a bullet summary. Pulmonary embolism is a common cause of obstructive shock. That's all for this review about obstructive shock. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here, on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.